Go ahead and take a seat. You guys get stuck with the C team today. Pastor Jason's on vacation in Hawaii. I hope it's raining there right now. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, I'm joking. I hope he's having a great time. Maybe you'll get sunburned. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, my name's Ben Mosier. I'd like to start by thanking Pastor Jason and the elders here for giving me the privilege and the honor to preach today. Before we get into the text, I want to sort of do a preface, a few things, uh, look at the basic components of the gospel. This directly ties into today. Uh, Anytime you hear somebody give a presentation of the gospel, many different ways to present the gospel, but there's always four basic elements. Uh, God, man, Christ, and response. Who is God? He's the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who demands holiness and perfection. What are we? Who is man? Well, we're a bunch of wretched sinners in need of a savior. And if the gospel just, gospel means good news. If you just take those first two elements of the gospel, that ain't good news. You need the third and fourth element, the third element, Christ, the sinless son of God, the the one who came as a death, burial, and resurrection became the propitiation for our sins, our savior. And then how do we respond to that? Do you acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you repent and be saved? So that's basically the gospel in a nutshell and its four basic components. Today we're going to look at the first two parts. Who is God and who is man? The wretched sinner in need of a Savior. This is a heavy sermon. And yet, maybe if there's ever a second time that I get to stand in this pulpit, I'll preach on the goodness of Christ and grace. We just sang, Jesus paid it all. You can't out the grace of God and our response of repentance. But for today, we're going to look at man and God, uh, mostly man, focus on our, our sin that we need to take seriously. Throughout history, many churches fail to emphasize all four elements of the gospel. And you can get some churches that hammer on the holiness of God and man. Uh, we just, I, I was hit by that song, we're echoing holy to the Lord. It's amazing when you look at the only spot in, in, in the Bible where a word is repeated three times is the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Basic Hebrew lesson, um, which is totally just, I was thinking about this, we were singing that. It's not correct in English grammar. Our, our English translations of scripture are phenomenal, but the Hebrew doesn't translate. There are some things that you can't translate in languages. It's not proper English to to say a word twice to double emphasize something. No, no, he didn't, didn't do that. And yet Hebrew does that. Uh, It does that a lot of times throughout scripture where it will repeat a word twice. But the only time a word is repeated three times for emphasis is when it talks about the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So you get churches that preach about the holiness of God and the wretchedness of man. And throughout history, there have been some churches that, that, man, they hit those hard with a sledgehammer, but they don't touch as much on God's grace and goodness. And those churches tend to become legalistic. And then you get churches that focus on God's grace and this response of of acknowledging God for his, his salvation, repent and be saved, but they don't acknowledge so much the holiness of God or man's sin and our wretchedness in need of a savior. And, and that can lead to theology that gives license and kind of permission, so to say, for sin. I love Lazy Mountain. Uh, I think this, I think we do a great job here and Pastor Jason, the elders do a great job of preaching and teaching a well-rounded view of the gospel of scripture. Uh, By preaching exegetically through books of the Bible, 
it's hard not to because you kind of hit all the elements of Scripture. All this to say today we're going to focus on the first two, on God and on man, to understand that we are wretched sinners and to get just a glimpse of the gravity of our sin is key to understanding the gospel. It produces so many things in our lives. When we understand, when we get a glimpse of the depth of our sin, what are some of the fruit of that, the consequence of that? Gratitude. Man, I know what I deserve and I know what I have in Christ. Produces great gratitude and joy in life. Man, Again, I know what I've got. It produces a love for others. Man, you sin against me, that's nothing because I know my sin is way worse than any sin you could commit against me. It produces a joy in life, a love for others. Uh, scripture tells those who are forgiven much, love much. Pastor Jason just preached on the tax collector and the Pharisee. It wasn't the Pharisee that walked away forgiven. Those who are forgiven much, love much, and we have all been forgiven much if we're saved. Do you, do you see that in your sin? The world, especially today, tells us sin is no big deal. I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and the world has come a long way since 1980. Okay, back then, at least general society agreed on a basic moral compass, on these things are basically right and this is basically wrong. Nowadays, people can't even agree on the definition of a moral compass. I read the news last night, just discouraging. As of yesterday, anyone is now allowed to participate in women's powerlifting. Wow, we have fallen far. Let's jump into the text today and see how God views sin. Today we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, the first 11 verses. 2 Samuel chapter 6. How serious is our sin? I'm going to read through these verses, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. Thank you. 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. The place of the ark of God, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, remember that name, the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. What a joyous event this is! Finally, moving the ark eight or nine miles away from Jerusalem to Jerusalem where it belongs. To the tabernacle. What a great thing this is. Verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacron, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For one of the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. Wow. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. 
and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, as we read through this, so many thoughts come to mind. Wow, did Uzzah really deserve to be killed? Wasn't God a little unfair or harsh? Wow, Uzzah's just trying to help, and here God nailed him. Wow, what's up with that? Maybe you're new to church, and you think, man, those Christians and their zap-happy God can't wait to strike you down. Or maybe you've been in church your whole life and you think, man, what is the deal? Sometimes God just permits sin and lets it go and go and go and go and doesn't seem to do anything. And other times he deals with it decisively and harshly. He doesn't allow it to linger. All these are valid questions. This is a fascinating, interesting, intriguing story. At the same time, it it can invoke frustration. But the point of the story, it brings to bear our finiteness in our ability to judge sin. We recognize, as Isaiah says, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. This story of God's anger with Uzzah's sin causes us to come face to face with the difference between how we view sin and how God views sin. As we dig into the context of what's going on here and look at the context of this section of scripture, it it paints a much clearer picture. And we can see how serious sin is and how we can apply this to our own lives. Today's goal is that we'll be able to understand why God included this story in us as an example to learn from, to recognize how this text is teaching us very simply to be alert, to be careful, to be aware of how we view sin. In other words, to take sin seriously, and not because of what sin can do to us, but because our sin is an offense against a holy God. So, steps to foster sensitivity to sin. First, beware of unintentional sin. Now, wait a second. We see this in the first five verses, but first of all, let's let's take a step back here. Is there even such a thing as unintentional sin? Is that even possible for me to sin and not know it? Leviticus chapter 4 talks about sacrifices for unknown sins. Man, whoa, wait a second. If they can sin and not know it or sin unintentionally, I believe there is. The Old Testament, there's hundreds of commands. The Old Testament summarized in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, it summarizes all the commands in the Older Testament, into 10 basic commands. All the commands of Scripture fall under 10 basic categories, the 10 commandments. Jesus, in the New Testament then, further simplified the 10 commandments down into two. You look at the first four commandments, they're all about loving God, the last day all about loving people. So Jesus said all the commands of Scripture come down to love God and love people. If you think about that, are you, in, are you really capable of sinning, being unkind toward God or unloving toward people? Have you ever unintentionally said something hurtful? Have you ever unintentionally been a jerk and had to go back and apologize? Maybe I'm not the only one. I used to be a school teacher. My wife works in an elementary school. This is a true story with the names changed to protect the identity of those involved. Young elementary boy went to school one day. I said, Mrs. Smith, that is the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. Mrs. Smith said, Johnny, that's not a very nice thing to say. Can you think of a better way to say that? Kid you not. Johnny sat there for a second and he thought, he said, Mrs. Smith, 
that is the ugliest sweater I have ever seen. Is that better? So often that's us. We can sin and not be intentional. We don't even know the depths of our sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, the first five verses, David, he gathers the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He arrives with these people. They go to bring the ark up, the ark of God, which is called by name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They place the ark on a new cart. Well, it's a good thing the ark's not soiled by, you know, a dirty load that it had previously. Hey, I can see, you know, David trying to do things well. They get a new cart. They bring it up from the house of Abinadab. Uh, Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab, they were leading the new cart. And they brought the ark of God from the house of Abinadab. Ahio is walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and everybody else, they're singing and dancing and praising the Lord with music. Wow. We are to be aware of unintentional sin. The sins that we do out of ignorance. The sins that are not premeditated. Schemes of our wicked heart. We simply do it unintentionally. David epitomizes this in these first five verses. Be aware of your ignorant sins because the consequences can still be devastating. David sinned hugely in these verses. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, first off, let's step back for a moment. Let's put yourself in David's Birkenstocks and think about the context here. He was a shepherd just a few years back. This poor guy lived the original soap opera. Read through 1 Samuel sometime. King Saul, messed up individual. Uh, you got Saul, David, Jonathan, a few friends, and you got the original days of our lives. Not that I've ever seen that or would admit to it, but it's a total mess, okay? Saul loves David. He hates David. He tries to spear him against the wall, it makes treaties with David, hunt him down, try to kill him. Why? Bottom version, Saul loved himself. David loved the Lord. David was God's anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but Saul did not want to give up his kingdom. So David, he's been on the run. We get to this point in the game, and David's mid-30s, and he's finally king. He's united the tribes of Israel. Uh, at this point, he booted out the Philistines from the land. He's ruling in the land. He's the king in Jerusalem. Life is good for David at this point. He's won the battles. God gave him the victory, and now he's running the nation of Israel. Life is good. Here he is, king of Jerusalem. And what better thing to do than to move the ark from where it is to where it needs to be? To bring the ark to Jerusalem, the center of life and culture and worship. God ha David has good intentions. His desires are good here. I'd say even godly intentions, and yet he sins greatly. See in verse 1, David gathered all the chosen men, the mighty men with them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is going to be good. We got all the manliest men Israel has to offer, heroes and celebrities. Okay, these guys were the stuff of legend. He gets them all together. You got David uh, in his city. He brings his greatest warriors, all these people. Today's the day we're going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. What a wonderful thing. All these battle-hardened heroes. Which way's the ark? Let's go. Let's get it. They're jacked up. They want to do a thing that's good and honoring to the Lord, and yet David is sinning. How in the world is that the case? David was king. He was the man where the shekel stopped. He was in charge of leading Israel. And David, with his intentions of moving the ark, gathered warriors and not priests. Not the Levites. Not the priestly tribe. They were there. But David did not move the ark 
nor did he follow God's commands. I, I believe he did it ignorantly. I don't think it was on his mind. He had good intentions, but no direction and sins against God. I used to preach at a drug rehab center and uh, there's this guy. He got saved, genuinely understood the gospel, loved the Lord, started devouring scripture. And a few weeks after he was saved, he gave his testimony. And I have never heard a testimony like that before. Um, he was devouring scripture, but apparently he hadn't read Ephesians 4.29 yet, which says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Because when he was talking about what the Lord had done in his life, very, very colorful language. Okay. I'm just thinking, I cannot wait to see how amazing God uses this guy because everyone's going to know what he was and those who are forgiven much love much and everybody knows he has sinned much, just like all of us. It was just a little more public display then. And it's so easy to go, oh, yes, you're talking like that, but you're talking about God's glories and his grace and forgiveness in your life. It's not that big a deal. Well, who am I to make light of sin? But all is forgiven. But this man, he's thrilled to talk about it, but kind of unwholesome speech. Maybe you're a new believer and this is you and you find out that you're mixed up in sin and it wasn't intentional. It's just so rooted in your life. You didn't know it was sin. I'm not going to tell you it's okay, but there's a solution here. God's given us three things to avoid ignorant sin. First is his salvation. Second is his spirit. And third is his word. Salvation, if you're saved, God is going to be continually sharpening your conscience towards sin, causing your conscience to be tender towards sin. Philippians 1.6 is, is proof of this. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God's given us his spirit as well. John 16 talks about the spirit of truth. It guides us in truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 shows us that by the Holy Spirit, we can understand the word of God. And the word is where we lose our ignorance. It's amazing. I've heard a great many theological debates among young people. It's like, oh man. <laughs> One young man is talking about the sins of gambling. I thought, oh yeah, that's horrible. I said, but I want to know scripture and verse. Where does it say that? The Bible doesn't say anything about it. Wow. And if you're gambling and you're gambling away your groceries, money, and all this other stuff, that's sin because it's unloving. We'll get into that later. Shouldn't get sidetracked here. Without the word, you remain ignorant. God teaches you about himself and about God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A very dear friend of mine once said, if you don't pour the water of the word of God over your mind every day, your soul is ripe for a harvest of weeds. That is so true. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that ignorant sin is no big deal. We grow slack often in our pursuit of sanctification because we are satisfied. We judge our sin's terribleness by our own standards. It's absurd. It's not that bad. I mean, to judge our own sin by our own standards, it's like letting high school freshmen grade their own English papers. Not a wise idea. I believe God knows we have a tendency to wave off sin. And so we're reminded of the gravity of the situation here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We see David gathers this mass of people. He heads to where the ark is located. Verse 2, the ark is said to bear the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, 
who is enthroned above the cherubim. This is reminding us that this ark is a whole lot more than just a religious ornament. Okay, this is the ark of God, a wooden box covered in gold. It contained the tablets of Moses, the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron. This box is a huge deal. Why? Uh, because behind this box is God, his intentions, and his directions for the people. And David and his mighty men commit well-intentioned, ignorant sin. Notice in verse 3, we see a very sad thing, a new cart. You know who else moved the ark on a new cart? The Philistines, when they stole it. It didn't work out so well for them either. Here, David, well, well, hey, let's get a new cart. Him and his men failed to consult the Levites. Uh, The time's now, let's build an ark for the cart. Uh, They go out to the ark. Problem is here, when they're loading that ark, it had these beautiful gold rings on the corners of the ark. Ah, that's where the poles were supposed to be inserted so it could be carried by the Levites. That was God's direction for the people of Israel. Under David's command, this is not happening. Instead of, this is some royal spectacle and a pompous parade that has all kinds of sin abounding. David and his men, they employed the help of Ahio here in verse 4. He's walking in front of the ark. And Uzzah enters in in verse 6. Here we see we need to be aware of un, beware of unintentional sins. They're minimized by us, and yet they're a big deal to God. We need to pour, read into Scripture, be sensitive in our soul, be on the lookout for unintentional sin, find ways to repent when we realize we have wronged somebody or the Lord. Secondly, we need to be aware, beware of intentional sin. Verse 6, I talked about Numbers 4 here. We're going to get into that here. Beware of intentional six. Uh, beware of intentional sin, verse 6. If you're going to pursue with success your sanctification, take heed, beware of intentional sins. Uh, let's fill in some details here as we look at exactly what Uzzah did. If you look at Numbers chapter 4, uh, mentioned, it describes how the ark is to be moved. Uh, it sheds so much color onto what's happening here in 2 Samuel. <clears throat> Scholars tell us that Uzzah was a Levite, and not only that, but there were different families of Levites, and one of the families was the Kohathites, the sons of Kohath. Uh, there were the Aaronites, the Kohathites. Uzzah uh, was a Kohathite. Now, I know when I made that statement just there, that Uzzah was a Kohathite, most of you suppressed an internal gasp and thought to say, now it makes sense. He was a Kohathite. I got it. Okay. For those of you who weren't quite there, let's look at this. The Kohathites had a special, special job in the tabernacle. They were the ones, they were the, the family of Levites whose sole job was to move the holy artifacts in the tabernacle and when they were moving them in the tabernacle. When you look at the tabernacle, you've got the Holy of Holies. The only thing that separated the Holy of Holies, the holy place, was this veil. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark uh, was used... Uh, to represent God's presence to the people. It's referred to as the footstool of God in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, meaning God's presence was there. It's a very special function in the tabernacle. You see, one day a year, and one day only, the high priest, he'd get robed up, he'd tie bells on his robe and tie a rope around his ankle, and he would enter the Holy of Holies and he would go in there um, to sprinkle blood on the ark and have the sin sacrifice for the people. And the reason he had bells on his robe and a an, uh, rope around his waist was so that if there was unconfessed sin in his life, if God struck him dead, 
the other priest could pull his carcass out of there. I don't know that I want that job. Okay, that's a pretty fearful thing. He wasn't there to check on the ark. He went in there with fear and trepidation to sprinkle the sin offering blood on the lid of the ark and in front of the ark and get out. God brought reconciliation between himself and his people by the blood of the sacrifice on the ark. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 16. The ark was an incredibly special artifact equipment to God. Numbers chapter 4. I'm going to go through this quick for the sake of time. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses here. God tells the Kohathites in extreme detail how the ark and the, the artifacts are to be moved. Um, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5. When the camp sets out to move, uh, they're moving through the wilderness, they're moving. When the, ta- the tabernacle is going to be moved, when the camp sets out to move, Aaron and his son shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So all the holy artifacts are to be covered so that the Kohathites can't even see the artifacts. And the Aaronites, they go in and they cover everything up. Then... We'll skip down to Numbers 4.15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, uh, when the camp is to set out, after, the son, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come in to carry them, and they will not touch the holy objects and die. These things are in the tent of meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then they describe all the stuff that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So the Kohathites, they're to carry stuff. And God warns that there's what, I think three different warnings in here? Don't touch it or you'll die. Don't look at it or you'll die. Uh, uh, Verse 20 in Numbers 4. uh, But they shall go in and they shall not go in and see the holy objects even for a moment or they'll die. These are the Kohathites, Levites. Their job is to move stuff. The Aaronites, God has left nothing to chance here. The Levites and the, the, the Aaronites, the Kohathites, they know exactly how this stuff is to be moved. As we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and we think of Uzzah, imagine what it was like for Uzzah. Before we throw stones at him, let's put, ourselves, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a minute. He's just hanging out, living the life of a Kohathite in the tabernacle. Hadn't moved in 20 years. When you're a moving man and things don't move for 20 years, you got it good. He's sitting there, life is good. Why? Because Saul was a loser, okay? He became king. He didn't care about the ark. It's eight or nine miles away from Jerusalem. Ah, whatever. He didn't care about what God wanted done. He didn't care about the holy objects of worship. Tabernacle gets faded, dusty, starts to get dilapidated. You guys have all seen buildings. Their former days of glory are gone. They get worn out, dilapidated, falling apart. That's kind of how the tabernacle was viewed under Saul's leadership for 20 years. Just sat there and wasn't used as God intended. And here's Uzzah, minding a little business. Off of Jerusalem, eight, nine miles away, he sees a crowd of people coming. 30,000? Massive crowd. And I'm guessing he knew exactly what they were coming for. They're not being chased by raiders. There's not a war at hand. Uh, uh, David is now king on the throne, the man after God's own heart. I bet they're coming for the ark. I bet they're coming for the holy objects. Why else would 30,000 people spontaneously leave Jerusalem? They were after the ark. Imagine Uzzah's predicament. David, King David, shows up. Your little existence says, load the ark on the cart. Wow. Uzzah knew how the ark was supposed to be moved. Okay. But we got King David here, but not only King David, his mighty men. It's so easy to gloss over that. David and his mighty men. If you're Uzzah, you're probably not very famous. Nobody knows you. You're this nobody. 
Here are the commanders of commanders. David's mighty men. <laughs> These guys like John Wayne were the stuff men were made of. Okay, Ahio killed 800 in one battle. He was the leader of David's mighty men. Eleazar, uh, Shammah, they did similar events. Okay, These were manly men. Abishai, he wasn't as good as the top three. He only killed 300 enemy soldiers in his life. Benaiah, after killing two heroes of Moab, decided he wanted a little bit more fun, so he went down into a snowy pit and killed the lion. Okay, These guys were celebrities. These were the type of men that other men wanted to be. They showed up with King David. Hey, Oza, load the ark. What would you do? Well, some of you are honest say, I'd load the ark. Okay. Some of you, no, I would not do it. The fear of man never enters my thinking. Right. You ever fail to share the gospel because you're afraid of what somebody else might think or the consequences that might bring? Do you ever fear man? Do you ever just go along with the crowd? Here in verse 6, Uzzah the Kohathite allowed and helped load the ark onto the cart. And the Bible says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacron, Uzzah reached out. Ooh, fatal mistake, fatal mistake. He's caught up in the moment. He's part of the group. There's a whole bunch of them there. What's the big deal? He just went with the flow. I mean, this parade, this event is absolutely incredible. This is the coolest thing Uzzah's ever been a part of. He's a part of the group, and yet God's hold him, holds him individually accountable for his sin. Sometimes we do that as Christians. You're in a big group, somebody starts to gossip, and we just stand there and listen. Uh, I'm just standing here. I'm not doing anything. They'd be gossiping if I was here or not. I'm just listening. Man, you ever excuse your sin? Oh, man, well, everybody struggles with sin. That's eh, not a big deal. Make light of it. We think like Uzzah. Uzzah was walking next to Art thinking, man... We're following David. We're praising the Lord. This was not my idea to move it this way, but we're moving it. Things are fine. Everybody's worshiping here. Who am I to hold them back? That'd be terrible. I'm just with everybody else doing my own thing. We're doing what's necessary. We're moving the, moving the ark like we need to to Jerusalem. Notice how Uzzah's sin progressed. It begins small. Probably just saw the ark. Hey, let's load up the ark. Probably started by seeing it. They're loading the ark. Oh, they probably even grabbed it by those, you know, circle rings when they loaded it. Should have jogged us his memory. Oh, the poles. Eh, no big deal. Ark was supposed to be covered with cloth. Uzza, they load the ark. Shocking. And to think, Uzza absolutely, unquestionably knew the right way to move it. As a Kohathite, to not know Numbers 4 is unthinkable. That's your family's sole job. Okay, for a Kohathite not to know the proper way to move the ark is like a U.S. Marine not knowing how to fire a rifle. It's unthinkable. And yet Uzzah's sin quickly progressed. He becomes accomplice to this sin. Hey, watch the ark. He's walking in front of the ark. How exciting this is. He's standing next to the ark of God, excited and he went from an unthinkable act to active participation in it in what, half hour? I don't know, maybe an hour? It's not going to take that long to go eight or nine miles. Sin started small. He sees the ark. He starts moving closer and loading it and transporting it the wrong way. John Owen, I love what John Owen said, be killing sin or it, sin will be killing you. 
That was surely the case for Uzzah. Spurgeon said this, sin is like a ladder. Few reach the height of iniquity at once. Most men climb from one evil to another, then a third and a fourth. Sin unchecked in your life will grow greater and greater. We're no different than Uzzah. It starts small and grows. Uzzah, this Kohathite, he had religious privilege. He would have lived within walking distance of the tabernacle, been trained and steeped in scripture. Knowledge was not his problem. He was informed, and yet he was sinning. David sinned unintentional, but when it says the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, I think very strongly contextually here, and looking at scripture, that's because Uzzah was informed. He knew better, and he was willful sinning here. So many aspects that we could look at. Uh, but his sin, let's, let's look at one aspect of self-righteousness in his sin. See, Uzzah, he stand near the cart. The ox stumble. The, the cart almost tips over. And these poor... Uzzah, as they tumble, he's thinking, oh, I got to save it. And he sticks out his hand and touches the ark so that it wouldn't go over. Wow, surely God would rather me hold on to the ark than have it hit the ground. Wow. Surely my hand is more righteous to touch the ark than the dirt that God made. Uzzah was a little self-righteous when he did that. In one way, he declared himself to be worthy to approach God. Declared himself to be righteous enough to touch the ark and to continue sinning. Wow, thankfully, you or I would never do that. You'd never tolerate sin in your life. You'd never... Pray to God with unconfessed sin in your heart that you knew was there and just ignore it and move on. You never live day to day as though there's no consequences for sin with no regard for your creator. Some people live their life with their hand on, their, on the ark taunting God with their irreverence and their self-righteousness. Do you mock God like a three-year-old mocks their parent? It's amazing. You look at scripture and over and over again in a lot of places, people do that for a long time and get away with it for a while. This is uh, Judges, the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, there are 16 Judges. The cycle that's repeated throughout Judges is amazing. People follow the Lord for this long. Then they sin for this long and reject the Lord. God brings in the Philistines or somebody to crush them and oppress them. Finally, they get to a point where they'll turn to the Lord again. God brings in a judge to deliver them, save them from their oppressors. And then they follow the Lord for like this long. But God blesses them for this long. So they follow the Lord for here, and then they're sinning for a long time. And God lets them go for a long time before he drops the hammer. Sometimes that happens. But it's, sin is never worth it. We need to beware of informed sin. Don't sin intentionally. Number three, beware of God's discipline. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez, Uzzah, to this day. Uh, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. He died there by the ark of God. As we peek into chapter 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst. Uh, it's called, uh, the place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez means outburst against. It's called outburst against Uzzah to this day. Uh, 
man, <clears throat> if you're going to pursue your sanctification, you need to beware of God's anger toward your sin. Take heed. Take sin seriously. God's face burned like hot passion burned, face contorted against us's sin. Don't look at the cart. He looked. Don't move it on a cart. He loaded it on a cart. Don't touch. He touched. And wham. Wow. Numbers. Chapter 4 tells the Kohathites over, I think three times, or multiple times, don't do this or you'll die. Don't do this or you'll die. Don't do this or you'll die. Well, that time came. Uzzah's sin began small and it grew in a matter of minutes. Finally, God had enough and an outburst from heaven snuffed out the life of Uzzah. I don't know what that looked like. It's some sort of powerful, observable, divine act that removed Uzzah's life. You see here in these verses where God gave Uzzah a second chance on his deathbed just before he died. Consider your ways, Uzzah. You're about to die. See where God warned Uzzah? Hey, you're getting close to, you're getting close to my discipline. You've been pushing it far enough. You're getting close. You're getting close. Do you see that? I sure don't. Why then? Would we live our lives supposing that God would do that for us? Sometimes it happens, sometimes not. Why would you tolerate sin and not be quick to repent of it? God's anger is boiling against our sin. His anger against our irreverence for his holiness is only held back by his grace. Jonathan Edwards described God's anger against us as a bow that is bent back and only God's hand holds the string. Only God's grace and mercy. And by the way, you can't out the grace of God. Praise God for it. It's amazing. And yet we are not to tolerate sin in our life. Sin is a big deal. Thankfully. Getting into Christ in response to the second half of the gospel. It's so much lighter and easier to preach and happier. We'll get to that some other sermon. But it's amazing. You cannot out the grace of God. And yet sin is serious, and there's consequences for that. Hebrews 12, 6, talking about believers. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He used to teach sixth grade. Ask the sixth graders, hey, have you ever known a kid that's never, getting dis- never been disciplined by their parents? All the kids are like, yeah. What are they like? They're a spoiled brat. Well, yeah, of course. Parents love their kids, they discipline, so they don't become brats. God loves us, he disciplines us. I have an older sister growing up. She made poor choices more than I did, and I would see her discipline and think, ooh, note to self, don't do that. I learned from her sin. It's great. That's a wonderful thing. God wants us to do that. Here, let us learn from Uzzah's mistakes. Finally, we need to beware of a wrong response to sin. So there is sin in our life. We do find sin. We do see sin. We're aware of it. What are we going to do about it? Don't do what David does. Verses 8 through 11 here, David gets angry. Is he angry at God? Is he angry at himself? Is he angry for whatever reason? I'm not sure what all of his anger was, but he was angry that Uzzah was struck dead. He didn't view Uzzah's sin in light of God's instructions or God's holiness. I think it caught him off guard. Man, David kind of missed the boat there. He was afraid, but he was afraid for the wrong reasons. He just wanted the ark. He was afraid that he was mad that his plans got upset, ruined. He's moving the ark to Jerusalem. That's my plans. Let's do it. This is a good thing. This is a godly thing. And his plans were thwarted, so he just ran away from the problem. Just leaves the ark. Hey, guys, you take it over. <laughs> Imagine that. There's this massive parade of people. 
God descends from heaven and crushes the life from Uzzah. Uh, People scatter. (coughs) Tambourines are strewn across the countryside. David turns to you and says, your turn. You take it now. What? Come on. As a kid, I remember watching Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, that'd be so cool to find the ark. I don't know if I want to find the ark right now. I sure wouldn't touch it if I did. That's going to stay in your house now. I'd be a little fearful upon hearing that. We never do anything like that, like David did. We don't sin and never say things like, oh, nobody could have resisted that temptation. If you hadn't have been so mean to me, I wouldn't have gotten angry. If God hadn't made my life so difficult, it'd be so much easier to trust him. We never blame our sin or on a situation, on God or on somebody else, do we? The woman you gave me, God, the woman you gave me, started with Adam and Eve and has been continuing ever since. So easy to point the finger. There's only one solution to God's anger. There's only one sufficient fix. What should we do? German philosopher Hein, anytime you hear the phrase German philosopher, red bells should be going off. Warning, warning. He said, oh, God will forgive. After all, that's his trade. That's a very poor thinking. The white-hot fury of God's wrath is justly aimed at our soul for the sin that we commit against God. What are we to do? It's tempting. A lot of false religions do this. Our sinful nature, it's easy to think, I need to be good or do good, or I need to be a good person so I can earn favor with God, live a good life, and then God won't be angry at my sin. That is like taking a BB gun grizzly hunting. You're dead, okay? Totally insufficient, impossible. How is God's wrath against our sin to be satisfied? One place and one place alone. Christ. Christ alone. Romans chapter 3. You see this, beginning in verse 21, Romans 3, over and over. The, the whole Newer Testament and tons of the Older Testament hammer this. Man, our Savior the one who is the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3.21, just one of numerous places we see how our sin can be forgiven. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are just like Uzzah, we've sinned. Being justified, how are we justified, viewed righteous in God? As a free gift by his grace, grace, free undeserved gift, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. We are God's anger against our sin is satisfied through Christ alone, through his death, burial, and resurrection alone, period. No other solution for our sin outside of Christ. We can do nothing. We are to repent of our sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ, and he is the merciful justifier of our souls. The one we can be declared righteous through faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and so gracious. God, it is so easy to dismiss our sin, to make light of it, to realize that we can't outsin the grace of God. And we are, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, far as the east is from the west. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. And yet he washed it white as snow. God, help us to rejoice in that. And because of our salvation, help us to take sin seriously because you do. Help us to be quick to repent of it and quick to seek it out in our lives so that we may repent of it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you'd find someone today that you don't know. Introduce yourself. Have a good day.